go ye. And uh, everything kind of piled up in the same time period, but it is the Christmas season. And so uh, tonight we're going to have our second lesson in the Gospels. We're going to go through the Gospels, a, a systematic harmony. By that we mean we're going to cover... Uh, basically every verse in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're going to take them out of their uh, respective books and we're going to assemble them uh, together. We're uh, maybe not going to read through every uh, word, but we're going to cover uh, every story and every part. Uh, we'll read through at least one account of each of the story where there's differences. I'll do my best to bring uh, all of those into play. Uh, there have been several attempts to take the four Gospels and assemble them into one uh, book, one narrative, and take out all of the other things. I, I don't believe that is correct uh, way to approach it, for if... God only wanted us to have one story, then we would only have one gospel. We have four distinct, various accounts of the life of Christ. And uh, last week, we went through the beginning. And the gospel did not begin when Jesus died on the cross or when he was born in Bethlehem's manger. The gospel began when God said, let there be light. When God created the heaven and the earth, the gospel is not separate or against anything in the Old Testament. It is just a continuation. Now, I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And what we have here is the genealogy. We have two. And uh, what makes them confusing is... Matthew, if you want to keep a finger in Matthew chapter 1 and then turn to Luke uh, chapter 4, or 3, I'm sorry. Luke chapter 3. Matthew starts at um, uh, Abraham and begins to move down through, and Luke... He starts in verse 23 uh, with Jesus and then goes uh, Joseph all the way back to Adam. And so Luke goes backwards. Matthew goes forwards. Uh, there are some differences here and many people have tried to look at these differences and, and uh, try to say that... Uh, uh, they certainly can't be in agreement with each other, and this can't be true. And, and uh, the, the basic exclamation, uh, uh, explanations are simple this. Uh, the simplest one is that there were some intermarriages, second, third cousins uh, uh, got together here and uh, actually connected the two genealogies so that both genealogies would actually be referring to that of uh, Joseph. Some have suggested that Mary and, and, uh, Mary's genealogy was in 
the uh, book of Luke and that um, Joseph's genealogy is in the book of Matthew. Uh, my, my take is simply this. There's no need to argue about things that we cannot know. Uh, both of these genealogies go back through uh, David. Uh, one of the differences is, and let's just look at Matthew's here, if your finger's still there. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, that is the summation. And Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Perez, and Zerah of Tamar, and Perez begat Esram, and Esram begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadad, and Aminadad begat Nasson, and Nasson begat Salmon. And Salmon begat Boaz, or Boaz, of Rechab. Now, this is important right here. Salmon was the descendant of Judah who was alive as they came into the land of Canaan. And how many of you remember the story of Rahab the harlot, who was saved out of the uh, city of Jericho? Her and her family were the only ones that survived uh, the city of Jericho. And she was brought into the covenant line into the direct descent of King David. Now, Boaz, we remember the story of Boaz because he married Ruth. And have often people have often said, well, Boaz certainly, must, being a mighty man of wealth and all of this, he must have had many, uh, several other wives and Ruth was just added in there. No, chances are because of who his mother was, there were a lot of families in Israel said, we're not, we're not giving our daughter to do that. Uh, we're not going to perpetrate that, that bloodline. We're not going to allow the, the son of a harlot to, to continue. And yet God had other plans, didn't He? He sent wicked, complaining, uh, discontent Naomi and taking her family into the land of Moab and she was brought back and when she came back, Ruth followed her and Naomi said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't, that means pleasant. She says, I want you to call me Mara or Mary, which means bitter. Because my life is bitter. And it was the love and the care that Boaz had extended toward Ruth. And protection, by the way. Read the book of Ruth there. And Naomi's hardened heart, she was mad at God. Now, whose fault was it that they were in the land of Moab? You know, Elkanah made the decision, but the inference was, uh, uh, what do they say in the, in the world? Behind every good man is a better woman kicking him in the backside to make him go that direction. Isn't that what the world says? Well, I'll tell you, I think that was very true of the story of Elkanah and, and Naomi that there was someone kicking Elkanah in the backside saying, hey, I'm tired of not having food on the table and I'm tired of the insecurity and the danger. We're going to go somewhere safe. I'll tell you what, you can't find anywhere safe outside the Word of God. Could we say amen to that? And so we have uh, Rahab 
and Ruth added into here, and Obed was the son of Ruth and Boaz. And by the way, the reason the the names are spelled differently and pronounced differently in your New Testament is because the original language your New Testament was written in was Greek. And the language of the Old Testament was Hebrew. And there are differences between the languages in the centuries, that, the way that they uh, pronounce them, just like my name is Peter, but if, if you were to put it in the Greek, it would either be Panayotas or Petra. Petros, not Petras with an A, Petros with an O. Uh, if it was Patricia, it would be Petras with an A. And uh, uh, those are the differences here. And I want to challenge you to think about this. Instead of our King James translators just taking the Hebrew names and putting them in there, they were extremely consistent and extremely literal with their translation of the names, and they took them directly from the language in which they were recorded. We can make the connections very simply. But what they were doing was making sure that the translation was extremely literal. They took no liberties with the text. Just one of the little asides there. One of the reasons I believe and we only as a church use the old King James Bible. And so we go pick up here with Obed begat Jesse and Jesse begat David the king. And remember, David the king was not Jesse's firstborn, now was he? He was Jesse's youngest son. He was the eighth son of Jesse. And so, after David the king was Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. Isn't it amazing how God, through this genealogy, stops at some of the darkest chapters in his servant's disobedience to him and shows us his forgiveness. Could we say amen to that? That was a terrible, terrible thing that happened with David. How that he stole the wife of Uriah, one of his mighty men. God exposed his sin. David repented. And the second son, the first son died. Solomon was Born, showing God's complete and true forgiveness. Okay, we, need, we need to think on these. That's why these genealogies are here. They are here to remind us God does not go around the corner here. He does not hide sin under the carpet of history. He keeps it right out there. And Solomon begat Rehoboam. By the way, Solomon wrote most of the Proverbs were directed to Rehoboam. Didn't do him a lot of good, did it? In fact, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you will read Solomon's laments about he was wise enough to know what Rehoboam was going to turn out to be. Now, do you think if Solomon was wise enough to know what Rehoboam was going to be, that he could have been wise enough 
to train and spend time with his son so he didn't turn out that way. But again, the Bible does not cover any of these things up. It puts it right out there where we can see and read. If you know the names and all of this, you can find these things out. Rehoboam begat Abia, and Abia begot Asa, and Asa begot Jehoshaphat, or Josephat, Jehoshaphat in the Old Testament. Jehoshaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias, and Ozias begat Jonathan, and Jonathan begat Jotham, I'm sorry, Joatham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias, or Hezekiah, and Ezekias begat Manassas, and Manassas begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josias, and Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And it goes on, and it gives us all the names right down here. Let's, let's finish this out. And, <clears throat> and after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begat Abihud, and Abihud begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor, and Azor begat Sadok, and Sadok begat Achim, and Achim begat Elihud, and Elihud begat Eliezer, and the Eliezer begat Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. And so, we have a record here. These genealogies are important. If Jesus would to would fulfill the biblical requirement of being the son of David, it had to be provable. Do you know that if any man stood up today and claimed to be the Messiah of the Jews, there would be no way of proving it? Because the genealogical records were destroyed in 70 A.D. In fact, the only records that we really have that are extant today are those that are recorded in our Bible. No Jewish person, though Cohen usually means of the tribe of Levi, and, and certain other names uh, 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 determ- uh, mean other tribes, And I've not done a great study on that. But it is something interesting to think about. That if Messiah was going to take advantage of a true history, a provable pedigree, he had to come before 70 A.D. If we study the the Bible, it tells us in the prophecies that one day, it's going to be during the tribulation when the Antichrist ascends to the holiest of all in the temple in Jerusalem and sits upon the mercy seat claiming to be God that the Jewish people as a nation are finally going to wake up and understand that Jesus is their Messiah. Then things are really going to get bad. And so, um, (coughs) excuse me. And so we can understand that uh, Matthew gives the descent from David through Solomon. Luke gives the descent, David through Nathan. If you're a person that just has to read and study this out, uh, one of the better books on the subject is The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. 
If you want, I think I have a digital copy of that. It'll work in any uh, PDF reader. It's about 1,400, 1,500 pages. If you would like that, see me and I'll, I'll get you a thumb drive copy and you can pick through all of that if you want. Uh, I also have another 5,700 page book on the life of Christ by a guy named Geeky. I think it's how his, it's G-I-E-K-E. Uh, I'm not quite sure how you would pronounce that, but uh, I'm sure he doesn't care since he's been dead for half a century. Uh, at least, no, more like a century. Uh, the book, these books were written in the 1800s, but they're, they're very thorough and very uh, concise and all of that. The simplest definition understanding is to take what the Bible said. Both genealogies belong to Joseph, but he had a couple of uncles that were actually what we would call double cousins and, and uh, put that whole thing together. And so... We have the genealogies that are listed here, and I'm not going to take a great deal more time with those. And uh, let's go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And we're just going to pick up things in order, of course. The reason we deal with the genealogies first is because all of these people had to be born, live, and die. It happened after creation and before the birth of Christ. And so this is what we mean by simply taking things in a systematic chronological order, harmonizing the two together, putting them uh, together. And now we get to Luke chapter 2, and we have a, a, a little bit of a Background here in verses 1 through 5, it says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed in their own city. And uh, I will tell you that the historians and the God-haters and the Bible correctors and all of that have gone through this passage with a fine-tooth comb and have said, Cyrenius was governor of Syria ten years before Christ was born, so the Bible cannot be accurate. Well, then they found a piece of paper that said Cyrenius took a break from being governor of Syria and then came back and was governor of Syria a second time right about the time Jesus was born. You know, people will argue and all of this, but what we have here simply is that the Romans collected taxes. Anybody want to argue that point? Uh, and their taxes were quite prohibitive. In fact, there were times... When, and if you want to understand some of the reasons why the Jewish people hated the tax collectors, the publicans like Zacchaeus, it was because they were supposed to tithe of their income. That's what the law said as Jewish people. And then on top of the tithe, there were many special offerings during the year. If you, if you follow everything in the Bible, the minimum giving was somewhere between 15 and 20%, depending on how generous and how obedient to the Scriptures you were. 
The tithe was not the end. It was really a beginning. And then you had the taxes of the Jewish people. And then came the Roman taxes. Sometimes it ate up 30 or 40% of your income. You know what? Almost sounds like what goes on in many nations of the world. What they're trying to do to us here. If it had not been for our current president rolling back the tide, I mean, it's, it's a very, very scary thing. Uh, I think the, in Canada, the, the income tax is about 40% of your income. Now, it covers health care and all of that, and if that's what you want, move to Canada. But I'll tell you, we need to be very, very careful as we understand these things. This was no simple task. And the Romans had great ways of collecting your unpaid taxes. They just sent the legions in and killed every living thing in the area. And pillaged it and collected it and said, Now, if the rest of you don't do that, we'll do it to all of you. And so this was something that happened and... Uh, Mary and Joseph would have left Bethlehem. Now, why did they do that? That was because the Jewish uh, tradition, the Jewish law, required you to be registered according to your tribe and according to your family tree. Now, Joseph was living in Nazareth, but he was of the tribe of Judah, of the descendant of David, and so he would have had to go back to Bethlehem in order to find himself in the registries and all of that, very similar to what we do on election day. You are supposed to vote in the district where you live. And I get many, many people coming in every time. Well, I I live in Long Island. I just want to vote here because it's easier for me. Well... Listen, if you want to do that, we'll give you an affidavit ballot. But is my vote going to count? Well, don't ask me that question. uh, Because you're supposed to vote by law in the area where you live. We're going to take the affidavit ballot. Well, then why are you giving me an affidavit ballot? Because you're asking for one, that's why. No one is going to come into a polling place and not have a chance to fill out a ballot. Well, what do they do with it? They're going to check it. If you don't live here, um, I mean, it won't count. Legally, it's not supposed to. Because we have a different list of candidates here than they do out on Long Island. You're voting for different people. Should you vote for different people, for, for someone's representative? I mean, that's the way it works in the elections. That's the way it worked in the taxes. And so, now, we're going to go back to Luke chapter 1. And Luke is telling us, this was the last of the four Gospels written. Luke was our historian. He was our resident researcher. He was one of the traveling companions of the Apostle Paul. So, he came a little later than the rest of them. And he gives us an introduction that we probably ought to just take a moment and look at. 
He says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Now, some people have suggested that Theophilus, a Greek name which just means lover of God, could be interpreted as a general salutation to any person who loves God. And that Luke was setting these things down in order and and bringing this up. It could have been an actual individual where uh, we we do not know. But Luke, we do know, wrote under the direction of the Holy Spirit of God. And he is setting down a narrative history of the things that were believed and practiced in the church. And Luke probably wrote his letter somewhere around 25 to 30 years after the time of Jesus Christ. The other Gospels, John was the earliest that we know that was written and could have been completed before 50 A.D. Matthew uh, would have come shortly after that. Mark would have definitely been before 60 A.D. I think the date of Peter's death is like 64 or 65 under Nero. And so Luke is coming in in the late 60s or so, more than likely before the uh, destruction of Jerusalem because it is not mentioned anywhere in his book. And so now we start in verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now here again, one of the reasons I, I simply believe both genealogies belong to Joseph was for this reason. Mary and Elizabeth were cousins. And Mary, I mean Elizabeth was of the daughters of Aaron. Elizabeth was a female direct descendant of Aaron the priest. And if Mary was her cousin, if there could have easily been intermarriage between the two, but Mary was more than likely of the tribe of Levi, whereas Joseph was of the tribe of Judah. And so we look down here, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Now that is a testimony. The door of God's direct revelation had been closed for well nigh on 400 years at this point. Now, let's put 400 years in context. 2018 minus 400. 1618. Your King James Bible was seven years old. Stop and think about that. It would be another two years before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. It would be 
another 12 to 15 years before the Dutch landed right here on Dutch Kills in Long Island City and, and began the work of inhabiting what is now Long Island City and Astoria. There was nothing here but a few Indians running across the vast meadows of Astoria hunting deer and other wildlife. Could you imagine what Astoria was like in those days? That was 400 years ago. 400 years since Malachi the prophet had uttered those words. And when God opens, reopens the door of revelation, he picks up at the very syllables that Malachi last uttered. In fact, let's take a moment and just turn there if you would. Malachi. Now, it wouldn't hurt for us to look at verse 4 of chapter 4 of the book of Malachi. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Keep your finger there. Go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Uh, I want to challenge you. Luke was not quoting Malachi when he wrote these verses. But... He was quoting Malachi when he wrote these verses. Do you understand what I mean by that? He wasn't specifically rewriting from Malachi, but the similarity is so close. Why? Because God is reopening the door. Then, verse 5, Behold, I will send send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So, those are the prophecies uh, that um, Malachi finishes with. And look at verse 17. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, the prophecy that Gabriel is giving Zechariah is that that was given in Malachi. That, uh, that John the Baptist, as we call him, would go in the spirit of Elijah or Elias, and he would be the one that would prepare the heart of the people to receive their Messiah. His job was to be the forerunner. He was the last of the prophets. He was telling us that the Messiah was coming, and once Jesus came... He pointed the finger to him as a person and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. You know, we have much prophecy in the book of Revelation. But the New Testament, other than the book of Revelation 
and the first few verses of the history and the Gospels is not prophecy. Most of it, the vast, vast majority of it, is all on how we ought to live. And that is the challenge that we have. That is the challenge that we must accept. How are we to live for the Lord Jesus Christ in these last days? Amen? And so as we keep moving through the text here, uh, let's get back to verse 7. It says, And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. They were both well, now well stricken in years. And it came to pass while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, Abia was the 24th, was the last of the courses to offer incense. Uh, verse 9, it says, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. This was, he was to go into the temple in the morning and burn the incense on the golden altar. He was to take a uh, censer full of coals from off of the brazen altar in the courtyard. He would have had the opportunity, historians tell us, maybe once or twice, as he was a very old man. This may have been the second time he did this in his entire life. This was not a regular thing for him to do because there were many priests that were in each course and by lot they were given uh, uh, an opportunity to do this. This was his time. And we know that incense is a picture of prayer. And verse 10 says, And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing in the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw it, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zechariah, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. I want you to just get the story here. Zechariah was an old man. He was a direct descendant of the priest. He was not of the high priest of the immediate line, but he was one of the cousins of Aaron's sons. And here he had a once or twice in a lifetime opportunity to sprinkle the incense upon the coals on the golden altar before the veil that was in the temple. He understood that it was about prayer. Because as he was bringing the prayers of the people, he's also bringing his own. He's saying, God, I come before you to this most holy place. And I'm asking you one more time to give me a son. Someone to carry on my name. Someone to continue the line of our family. You know what? God was listening to those prayers, wasn't he? Now imagine standing in the temple, the only light where the golden lamp stands with the olive oil, and there is someone standing about four or five foot in the air next to the temple, next to the golden altar. Scared of living daylights out of you, how about me? I mean, me, how about you? And so... 
he's there and he listens as this angel tells him and tells him how to order his son, that he would drink neither wine or strong drink, that he would be filled with the Holy Ghost. Uh, that is the job of the Nazarite. Jo- uh, John the Baptist would never cut his hair as long as he lived. He would have been quite a sight, my friend, because there was uh, no, uh, what do they call that, detangling shampoo and, and all of those things that we have today. Uh, he was not uh, a man to practice all of the hygiene as his uh, bathing would have been in a river and his food was very coarse. Locust and wild honey we learned from later on. I mean, his food was what he could catch in the desert. And he would have presented quite a spectacle to look at him. He would have looked like... Uh, uh, what we would picture as a caveman. Now, he would have been properly clothed in all of these things, uh, and not uh, as, as they say, because he understood uh, more um, modesty and, and decency and all of those things. But Zacharias, as he was listening here, says, how in the world do I know this is going to happen? And I, I love the wisdom of the Lord. Verse 19, And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee, and show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb, and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. God said, I'm answering your prayers, but you're not going to be able to say a word till it's all done. Now, could you imagine the communication that Zacharias was trying to have? He comes out, and of course it was the custom when the priest came out from offering the incense to bless the people and to lead the people in a public prayer, and he lifts his hands and goes, and nobody can hear anything, and he can't hear any voice coming out, and he's checking his throat, and uh, in, those, in, in our days he'd be checking his mic to make sure it's turned on and everything, but nothing was coming out. And it began to dawn on him, that it was going to be a long time. If you've ever waited for a baby, that nine months seems like nine years sometimes. How in the world would it be if you couldn't say a word the whole time? He had some communication because as we read the bottom of the chapter here, when it did come time to call his name, Elizabeth had already known Uh, known the name that was supposed to be used. And so, Zechariah, in verse 23, it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed into his own house. Verse 24, And after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein 
He looked on me to take away my reproach from among men. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And we preached this, uh, I preached through here this morning. And so we're not going to take a lot of time to go over this again. But it was the same angel that had talked to Zacharias, now tells Mary. And we have God giving the announcement of the forerunner and of the coming Messiah. All of the prophecies now that were in the Old Testament about the Messiah were about to be fulfilled. And Mary seeks uh, Elizabeth to talk with her and to share her praise with God. And we get down to verse 57. John the Baptist is born. Eight days comes the day of his circumcision and his naming. And his wife, Elizabeth, because Zacharias has not spoken a word since the day he was in the temple, says his name's going to be called John. And they apparently had some type of instrument to write. And, and they wrote to him and, and asked him the question, what is his name? And he writes... His name is John. And immediately, he can start talking. Now, could you imagine what happened to the poor people in the presence of Zechariah, who had been silent for over nine months, finally unleashed? And we get a little report of that in his great praise and uh, of Jesus Christ. And... Uh, um, the, the people said, all they that heard him laid, verse 66, all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And Zechariah prophesied under the influence of the Holy Ghost. And we come down here. Let's just pick up the, the last uh, several verses. Verse 76 and thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew... And waxed strong in the spirit and was in the deserts to the day of his showing unto Israel. And so we have John being born. Just before John is born, Mary heads back to Nazareth. And we finish those things. And then we get into the actual events of the birth of Jesus Christ. And... Uh, Joseph and Mary, we again went over this this morning, were married. Joseph was contemplating what to do as Mary returned. And John the Baptist was born. He rose in the middle of the night, just took Mary as his wife. A very quiet, very private wedding. Stopped the gossipers, stopped all the gainsaying. Then came the taxation. Now, I want you, we're just going to finish right here. Let's go down to verse 19, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Here she is. She is finally holding in her arms that baby that was promised by the angel. 
I want to challenge you to think about this. When you look down at a brand new little baby, if this is your first child, your thoughts are, what a grand and glorious blessing from God. If it's your third or fourth or tenth, you're going, it's going to be 18 to 20 years before this one moves out of the house. But I, I, I will tell you, at least on my part, each one of them have been very special gifts from God. My hope and my prayer is to be like the old man as he had several children. They all gathered together after he passed away, and one of them said, You know, I was Dad's favorite, he told me. And the next one said, You know, I... He told me that they found out that he had told all of them, all of his children, that they were his favorite. And I I hope and pray that all, all of my children understand that. You see, Mary now held in her hands the Son of God. But that baby had to be fed every two hours and burped. And changed because that body had to grow in order for him to become the Savior of the world. There were 30 years, if I can say it this way, of nothing between Bethlehem's manger and the ministry of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we get a little frustrated and we say, well, I, I, I wish I could do more to serve the Lord. Or I, Hey, Mary was serving God and fulfilling her responsibilities by taking care of the baby. And then his brothers and sisters that came along after that and their family after that. And she was still there in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. James, who wrote the book of James, who was the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, was one of her sons. Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, was another one of her sons. They followed in the truth. Isn't that a wonderful thought? And what we learn from the beginning of the gospel here is these events finally became fulfilled Mary pondered them in her heart. She thought about them, I'm sure, as she stood there at the cross looking at Jesus, that baby that she remembers holding in Bethlehem's manger being crucified. That she was still trying to figure it all out. You know what? You and I, we don't have to figure anything, do we? It's all written down in the Gospels. We can read them. And understand them. The shepherds. By the way. It wasn't one or two shepherds. As in the nativity scene. I imagine that the actual number of the shepherds. If we've identified them correctly. As the keepers of the sacrificial flocks. Would have been actually in. uh, Closer to a hundred. Maybe two hundred shepherds. It said all the angels of God were sent to worship Him. That would have filled the sky, the temple flocks. 
was in the scores of thousands of sheep. Ten guys don't take care of a thousand sheep. Hardly. It would have been a lot of men. And they would have been parading through the maternity ward. And it says, they went on their way rejoicing. Glorifying and praising God for the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. And we'll stop right there. And we'll keep moving on with the gospel. Uh, Now, next Sunday night, uh, we'll be holding the 3 o'clock service, Lord willing, in Riverhead. And we will not be having a 6 p.m. service here. Uh, because there's just no physical way we can get out to Riverhead and get back by 6 o'clock. And so we'll be having our morning service at 10.30. And then as soon as that is over, now here's what is happening. Just so you know, the um, 